The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Today, 11.15 a.m. to 12 p.m., Dharma Sprouts Group for Children in Kindergarten through Second Grade and their parents. Today also, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m., Mindful Teens Group for High School Students. Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m., new series, Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation in Spanish, Week 1 of 5. Curso de Introducción a la Meditación Introspectiva en Español, Sesión 1. Thursday, 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m., Denis Biku will lead the regular Thursday evening set. Friday, 7 to 8.30 p.m., Mindful Parenting Series. Saturday, 9 a.m., Dharma Friends event, Seven Mile Hike at Wonderlook Park, includes walking meditation period. Carpool from IMC. For more information, check the Dharma Friends webpage on the IMC website. Also Saturday, 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m., Sati Center Daylong, the Brahma Viharas with Danisaro Bhikkhu. There will be a meal offering for Ajahn Danisaro and other monastics in attendance. If you would like, please bring food to offer at that time. Next Sunday, Dharma Friends event at the Imperial Ballroom in Redwood City. Ballroom dancing. Learn to waltz. One hour dance lesson at 5 p.m. followed by two hour dance party. Next Sunday, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m., Dharma Rocks Group for children in third through fifth grades. And 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m., Buddhism in the 12-step support group with Jennifer Lemus. Good morning, Gail. What a list. <laughs> we do a lot here, yeah. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to IMC. Nice, nice to sit with you all. I enjoyed quite a bit coming and sitting with the group. So this is the week that um, the Insight Meditation communities around the globe are celebrating, honoring, uh, observing Earth Care Week, which seems like a great event that only once a week, once a year, that we should be every every week, right? That we somehow uh, appreciate our very deep, intimate connection to our planet and all its many beings and life forms, and um, and uh, appreciate our the mutuality in which we live in this great world. One of the uh, very strong mythic symbols for our connection to the natural world in Buddhism is the symbol of the Buddha touching the earth. Uh, and the way the story is told is that he was um, um, in the pursuit of his awakening and he uh, was sitting up through the night uh, 
and had a series of dramatic insights that led to his awakening. But in that process, he um, started to doubt whether he was worthy of becoming awake, becoming free. And I think it, in, in a symbolic way or in a representative way, I think it's a question many people have. Um, is it okay to pursue personal liberation, spiritual awakening, when, um, you know, do we deserve it? Are we worthy of it? Is it okay to pursue that in a world of so much suffering? And should we instead be kind of supporting and helping others in their suffering? Is it okay to pursue kind of spiritual awakening? And, um, and so in response, um, the earth, which was seen kind of like an earth goddess thing, um, the earth responded uh, and had a little earthquake. And, um, and the way the story is told, that little earthquake, the earth was bearing witness to the Buddha's right to become free, to become awakened. And I think, uh, in, a, in a way, we see this as being true for all of us, that our connection to nature, if we have a connection to nature, uh, can show us that we have a right or we have an opening or a possibility of a radical change in how we understand ourselves in relationship to the world and to others. And this radical change uh, is one uh, that people often say has to do with interdependence, interconnectedness. The, um, in the way the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, the myth of it unfold, uh, continues, uh, in a variety of ways, nature comes into play around that time in his life. Uh, after he had uh, experienced his awakening, it said that he st- stayed for seven days, enjoying the bliss of awakening. But during that time, India, and I think it was close to the monsoon times, and um, so it rained on him, he was sitting outside, and a big cobra came, slithered up behind him, and, and lifted up above and behind, and was big kind of cobra kind of way, neck, whatever they do, they spread out, uh, created an umbrella over him, protected him from the rain. So um, the cobra represents power, and here's some you know, this powerful thing of nature coming forth and protecting the Buddha in the time of his freedom, his awakening. And then uh, after he was uh, finished sitting under his uh, tree of awakening, uh, the myth continues that he took some steps away from the tree, turned around and looked at the tree, and bowed to the tree in gratitude. And the idea of uh, having some feeling of gratitude toward the natural world for the support it gives us, uh, I think is a beautiful thing and a worthy thing, appropriate thing to do. Um, you know, it's a phenomenal that we should even be alive, right? Um, and uh, wh- what do we own our life to? But uh, certainly the natural world that provides us with, you know, pretty much everything we need. One of the important experiences in my life was um, when I was a college student at UC Davis, the, um, and I was taking an introduction to botany class, and there was one day where they were talking about the uh, carbon-oxygen cycles. And they had these, remember they had these beautiful, large chalkboard drawings of cycles of CO2 and oxygen, and how they all works, and how the plants mostly take up the CO2 and produce oxygen, and, and how we humans take, mostly take up the oxygen and release all the CO2. Um, and... Um, and so we had, you know, was kind of absorbed in this class, probably got fairly concentrated in all these diagrams. 
And then I left the classroom and to this the beautiful courtyard. And UC Davis has very beautiful old um, oak trees, kind of valley oaks towering above us. And I walked out in the courtyard and I, I just uh, was stunned. And I stopped in my tracks and was just quiet looking at these trees for a long time. And what stopped me was the thought that, um, you know, uh, I need these trees or I need plants to produce oxygen so that I could live. And I need them more than I need one of my kidneys. More than I need, I could do away, I could, I could, you know, manage without a hand, without an eye, both eyes, I suppose. All kinds of parts of my body, which are so important parts of me, I could do without. Maybe not all of it, but, but you know, enough of it. And, um, but I can't do without those plants. And so the question then was, where do I stop and the plants begin? Where do the plants stop, you know, and, you know, we, you know where was the boundary between us? And, you know, it was kind of a little bit my thinking mind operating, but it was more than a thinking mind. It was kind of a, the mind had gotten quiet and still. And in that quiet and stillness, there was a feeling or a sense of interconnectedness, interdependence, where I didn't feel separate from it. And this idea of not being separate uh, is a very important part, I think, for me in a connection to the natural world. I can have, I could, I can read, I can read a lot of manifestos and strong opinions about what's happening to our environment. Um, there's, I mean, there's lots, lots and lots of horrific things going on to our natural world and to the people who live in it. And um, and it's very easy to get kind of an almost puritanical, moralistic idea uh, that we have to uh, respond and do something, kind of st- the strategic imperative or moralistic imperative that makes sense, logically makes sense. But it's a little bit of a burden and kind of a downer to kind of feel um, this you know, heavy burden of obligation and distress. But there's a whole, but the similar, uh, similar motivation for responding to the needs of our environment can come out of this, feel, this feeling, the sense of interdependence. When our selfishness abates, when our greed, hate, and delusion and preoccupation with things abates, and we have a quiet mind or an open heart, there's this remarkable feel, feeling or sense of interdependence, interconnection that can be, where the feeling is that the natural world is n- as much part of us as our hand is. And just as, if you'd wash, just as, as you would wash your hand if it's dirty, you would care for the environment you live in as well, because it's an extension of you, or you're an extension of it, this mutuality. And this is why I believe in Buddhism um, there isn't so much the language of being a steward. Uh, I think sometimes in the West, coming out of the Judeo-Christian uh, kind of mindset, that being stewards of the natural world has been very important because we've been granted the natural world by God, and so we have to take good care of it. And so we have a, we have a privileged position. We're the caretakers. But to be a steward of natural world, I think is a little bit odd. And the way I see it is like, um, say you ask a friend to come and house sit for you for a week while you go away. Or they need a place to stay, and so you offer them, well, yeah, I'm going away, you could stay there for a week. And, um, and then um, while, while you're away, they just trash the place. Um, and, uh, and you call, you know, halfway through the week and say, well, how's it going there? And, oh, it's great, don't worry, I'm a go- I'll, I'll be a good steward for your house. And maybe by the time you're back, it's all cleaned up, right? They're a good steward, right? They're taken care of it. 
but to be a good, the house would have been fine without them. <laughs> you know, the idea of being a steward for your house when they're the ones trashing it doesn't quite make sense, right? So the natural world, for the most part, can do quite well without us humans. And there's an argument to be made that, you know, the, the world would be better off without us. <laughs> and, um, and mostly, you know, we're the one who's trashing the world, the environment. And to say we're going to be stewards of it, you know, it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, just that kind of way, you know, it's mostly what the world needs is protection from us. And, and, um, so, so rather than being stewards, the, uh, the idea is, 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 in Buddhism, is that we're in it together. We're mutual. We're all, we're all interconnected. And how do we cooperate and live to, uh, together in a cooperative and mutually supportive way? And this is expressed by one of the great, greatest of the uh, Buddhist teachers in Thailand in the last century, a teacher named Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he wrote this. The entire cosmos is a cooperative. The sun, the moon, and the stars live together as a cooperative. The same is true for humans and animals, trees, and the earth. Our bodily parts function as a cooperative. When we realize that the world is a mutual, interdependent, cooperative enterprise, that human beings are all mutual friends in the process of birth, old age, suffering, and death, then we can build a noble, even a heavenly environment. If our lives are not based, if our lives are not based on this truth, then we will all perish. So we, the idea is to cooperate with the, the world and live as if we are cooperating, as if we're in mutual relationship to it all. And that requires a number of things. One of the things it requires is being well informed. Um, it's one thing to uh, keep your neighborhood clean because you see that it's dirty, your house clean. Um, but uh, it's another thing to take care of the impact that you have and the, that uh, goes beyond what you can see. Uh, beyond your your own life, and so um, so do we have a responsibility to get informed of what's going on in the wider world? As so, I think I'm worried. As soon as we talk about the word responsibility, I think people start glazing over, or it feels like a burden. I don't know if it's so useful to come from a place of responsibility. It is useful to come from a place of uh, ability to respond, which is the original meaning, or maybe the word, the response ability. But the way when you take those two words together and say them very fast, responsibility, it feels like obligation for many people or duty. And some people like to operate under obligation or duty, but I don't think it's uh, as, as inspiring. But to feel, uh, to feel a kind of open-hearted connection, connectedness to the world and to others so that our innate generosity, our innate love and care can be the motivating factor. I think uh, I, I put much more faith in that, and much more hope that that, and if we have a responsibility to care for others and care for the world, uh, I would like to see that responsibility begin by keeping our heart open, by doing the inner work to keep our mind uh, clean, to clean it of greed, hate, and delusion, to keep, uh, clean it of the forces of mind of separation of, of uh, egotism, selfishness, that can be seen as kind of the source of our environmental problems that we have. And so each of us to do the, to do the work, to, 
to clean ourselves up and then to go and try to clean the world or to support, support it in useful ways. A very uh, meaningful story that I heard many years ago had to do with, uh, I think it was Gary Snyder who told it. In the early 1960s, he practiced Zen in the monasteries in Japan. And he was told by a Zen teacher in Japan that Zen practice involves only two things. So that's nice, easy to remember. Um, two things. One was to sit in meditation. This teaching was in the context of a monastery. To sit in meditation and, and then sweep the monastery courtyard. Those are the, that's all it is then. And then he added, but the whole world is your courtyard. <laughs> and so this idea that um, meditation is a place where we do the inner work of purifying ourselves... Uh, opening our hearts. And in terms of this you know, tremendous suffering that exists in our world, to open to that suffering, bear witness of it, we have to make ourselves a vehicle that's capable of encountering the suffering of the world. It's so tragic what goes on. And it's easy in the tragedy of it all, in this tremendous suffering, to succumb to despair, go numb, uh, get angry, and all kinds of things. And so this meditation process is a process of, of um, being able to witness it, be present for it, but without succumbing to despair. And maybe being, staying in touch with the wellsprings of compassion, the wellsprings of generosity, and to trust those, to have faith in them. Uh, just like the Buddha needed help from the earth, touching the earth to bear his witness, we need a witness, we need support sometimes to appreciate that it's appropriate and maybe even better to respond to tragedy and suffering from our generosity and care than it is to respond to suffering with our anxiety and our despair. Make sense? And so I think it's a a very important thing that we do, this uh, like meditation practice, this inner work, to prepare ourselves to be available to the world around us. But then... um, do we, are we informed? I would say, I would suggest, and I apologize if I leave some of you out and don't speak for some of you, that uh, the general pe- people who come to IMC are relatively well-to-do. I mean, they're middle class. Well-to-do, what does well-to-do mean? Um, you know, even the poor, and a lot of people in the poor in America are much better to do than people have been most of humanity in many places in the world. Uh, you own a car. Many people own a car, right? right? Just, and, um, and in this kind of environment, it's easy to be uh, somewhat myopic. And one very interesting myopic way, I, I kind of fascinated when I read this study, it, uh, there was a study of the people who, um, who are most likely to uh, be green, to recycle, you know, to use alternative energy and you know, do all kinds of things. And they're really motivated to do these things. And it tended to be people who were somewhat well-to-do. And, and then, uh, these are also the people who tend to go to Hawaii for vacation. And if you do an energy audit of your energy use, you'll see that that trip to Hawaii will uh, wipe out any benefit from <laughs> your you know, recycling, you know, you know, driving a Prius or whatever that you do, because it's, it's such a big use. I, I did an energy audit of my life, 
And uh, we go, my family goes once a year to Boston. It's a primary plane trip we do uh, in order to uh, see the family, my wife's family. It's a big, de- we get together with the family there and, you know, it's a family gathering time. It's important for my kids, important for my family. So, just, just, just to justify the flight, right? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you, you, t- you go on these websites, and energy audit websites, and you type in, you know, your, the amount of electricity you use and how much driving you do and everything that you do. And it, it shows you the, how much energy and carbon you put out. And uh, something like half of my, my energy usage, half of my carbon footprint is that flight, round-trip flight to Boston. Isn't that remarkable? So, so you know, people have, some people who are very well-meaning and are sensitive and awake, aware enough to be concerned with the environment are doing things, but it's so easy to, you know, then to just go ahead and not exactly wipe it out, it's all meaningful, but to, uh, you know, change the balance so dramatically by a flight to Hawaii or wherever, you know, people might go for vacation. And it's easy to not know. Uh, It's easy to not remember what goes on. I mean, here we are in the Bay Area. Uh, How many of you remember the Richmond oil refinery fire from a year ago? So I'm seeing about, at the best, maybe, oh, there's more hands are going up. (laughs) Maybe half. How many of you who remember that oil refinery from a year ago know how many people uh, uh, went to local hospitals to get treated for uh, air pollution that happened because of that? Anybody know how many? In general, several thousand. Several thousand. Any other guesses? So like several thousand, like three or four maybe? Maybe higher. Anybody else? 15,000 people a year ago went to local hospitals to be treated for the air pollution from the oil refinery a year ago. You remember? Ellen remembers. But uh, it, it goes so quickly we forget. Those are people, those are our neighbors up there in Richmond. And the refineries, I don't know where that oil and gasoline goes, what exactly they make up there, what kind. But my assumption, it's probably a good working assumption, that uh, it contributes to the gasoline I drive. Do I have a responsibility? Do I have a responsibility? Do I have uh, some way that I feel connected to the people in Richmond who had to go to the hospital? It's not the first time that residents of Richmond have gone to the hospital. It's happened periodically. Uh, The biggest incident was in 1993, 25,000 people had to go to the hospital. I don't think they were admitted necessarily, but they were treated in the hospital, looked at. That's quite remarkable in the Bay Area. It's, you know, so you, you know that. Do you know how much uh, uh, trash goes into the Bay every year? Uh, 1.3, 1.36 million gallons of trash. And the, and the trash is things like plastic bags and soda, soda bottles, things like that. So that was quite a, it seems like a lot to me. And uh, then it was interesting to see um, uh, what cities in the Bay Area are most responsible uh, for the trash that goes into the Bay? And uh, to my uh, distress, <laughs> um, among the top uh, worst 
polluters into the bay is Redwood City, one of the top 10. So that was kind of, you know, so here we are, Redwood City, and uh, somehow in our community. This summer I saw a really dramatic, for me, uh, documentary of Joanna Macy, the great Buddhist environmentalist, go, uh, going up to the Alberta tar sand fields in an airplane to fly over it. And they're kind of, kind of noisy little kind of small plane and she's talking and kind of hard to hear. But you, they, you look out the window at the tar uh, sand fields in Alberta and you know, she's talking for a long time and the planes don't go that slow, right? And it's just like miles and miles and miles of completely denuded landscape black that's been kind of churned up and, uh, and extracted. And I mean, it's just unbelievable how much, uh, you know, just plane, t- you know, you know, this plane goes on, on and on and on. And, um, and so then it said in the documentary that the Alberta tar sand fields, which have been kind of completely denuded, are the size of England. And I said, no, it can't be. England's a big country. And so then I went and did the research. And um, England's about 50,000 square miles in size. And the Alberta tar fields are about 50,000 square miles in size. It's astounding, right? You know, the oil from that, where does that go? Does it support me, us? Um, it's out of sight, out of mind. So when I was, um, I remember once I was uh, practicing in a monastery, practicing a lot of meditation, and my mind was relatively quiet, sensitive, my heart was open. And in that situation, I um, was outside under a tree and someone came along and they pulled a leaf off the tree and it pained me, it hurt. Now, I think that someone who maybe has never been on retreat, never had that kind of sensitivity, would think that's ridiculous. This guy is too sensitive. Um, but, uh, you know, even, even taking the leaf off had an impact on me. I say this not to be, again, distressing, but to be inspiring, that the fact that a human being can have that kind of sensitivity to feel the suffering in the world around them is a, is a very hopeful thing. Can we be open enough to, and, be wi- and be willing and have the capacity to be willing and to be a witness to what goes on in our communities, to what goes on to our neighbors, to what goes on to the wider world, so we can feel uh, the impact it has, to feel the suffering that goes on, and in that sensitivity to have the ability to respond, to have the ability to um, come forth to see if we can make a difference. Uh, And whether that's a difference in how our own patterns of consumption, or whether it's a difference in, you know, uh, doing uh, political action, trying to change our communities. So, Redwood City is one of the top 10 polluters of the Bay, plastic bags and all that. But on October 1st, I think it was, uh, Redwood City instituted a no plastic bag anymore at the local markets, right? So that's good. So someone had the political wherewithal to pass a law that now um, 
you know, hopefully going to reduce the amount of plastic bags that Redwood City, um, you know, spreads out into the world. These things are all, I think, meaningful and significant. What can you do? What do you want to do? What do we do as a community? How do we respond? How do we respond in a way that's inspiring uh, and inspiring to others? And here's an idea that I'd like to suggest is that um, uh, we look and see how we can live in more environmentally friendly ways that nourish us rather than taking it on as obligation that diminishes us but rather nourishes us. So a very small example, when I come down here to teach Sunday mornings, whenever I possibly can, I walk down here. It takes about half an hour to walk from my house. And I um, uh, am very aware that in walking I'm not driving my car. And that's a good thing for my car, for the environment. It's a, you know, um, so that's one of the motivations. But I love the walk. Um, it's good exercise. I love to be look. There's great trees here in Redwood City. I like looking at the trees as I walk down here. I like to be mindful of my environment and what I'm doing. I like to think that kind of time. I think about my talks coming down here. Um, so I feel like my life is enhanced with that walk, rather than diminished. Uh, I offer that as an example. Are there ways that we can see that we can enhance our life by consuming less? by uh, being careful with our energy consumption, by changing our patterns of consumption, and um, by being politically involved and trying to make a difference in our world. Because I think that if people see that we are enhanced by it, that our life is better by it, then it's inspiring for other people. But if we, other people feel that we're kind of like bitter or we're distressed or anxious or kind of burdened by the responsibility, and that's not going to inspire a lot of other people to do much at all. So, two things. Meditate and sweep your courtyard. And your courtyard is the whole world. It takes a little bit of willingness or interest to expand your horizons for your courtyard not to stop at the edge of your property, but to educate yourself and take time to learn about what goes on further afield. Do you know where the, not to distress you anymore, <laughs> you, you, you know which city in America has the most amount of smog? Anybody know that? I, I grew up in LA, so I would have said LA, <laughs> but no. Portland, Portland, really? I don't, I don't know about Portland. It's not in the list that I saw. Houston? You've been to Houston? Bad there, huh? I don't know. It wasn't in the list that I saw, so probably not. Denver, San Jose. The the, the uh, city that the, in the in the study that I saw, the city that has the most amount of pollution, air pollution in the United States, is Bakersfield. It has something to do with the way that the, the smog kind of travels into the Central Valley and stops there. And, um, and where does that smog come from? They say that a fair percentage of it comes from the Bay Area. So, you know, so we kind of just, you know, we have good air. 
push it out. So do we have a responsibility? How do we do? What do we do with this? So to educate ourselves, to learn. And if we learn these things, does it affect our behavior? Does it affect our choices? Does it affect... Um, and I think that, you know, it's a good thing to educate ourselves. I, I, you know, we, we have mindfulness and then we have, we have environmental mindfulness. We have uh, neighbor mindfulness. We pay attention to our neighbors, whether they're in the neighborhoods of Richmond or... Bakersfield or, you know, our immediate neighbors. Uh, to live a, a, a life to be awake means not just to live a life of enlightened, retired bliss, but rather to pay attention. And pay attention is something we can do actively and with choice as well. So one of the uh, things that I think is important in this whole environmental thing is, uh, uh, is the certainly energy reduction, using clean energy, and also what's called mitigation. Uh, We cannot expect everyone to stop flying and not use as much energy, but we can mitigate the damage of it. It's this carbon offsets you can do. The reforestation is a very important thing to do. So if you you do a lot of flying, you might consider um, making a donation to some place where you can uh, mitigate the effects of that flying by uh, some place where they makes a difference of plant forests and trees that can be a carbon sink. Uh, the, um, um, uh, so one of the things that we're trying to do for our immediate community is to put in a solar water heater at our retreat center. We now have two properties, this property here at IMC and IRC, our retreat center. And... Um, We've looked into kind of putting solar panels and things on the roof here and doing things for this building. But we actually don't use very much electricity and energy in this building, oddly enough, because you know, we don't use it all the time. And it wouldn't really, doesn't really make sense to do something here. But it makes a lot of sense to do something for our retreat center. We use a lot of propane down there. We use a lot of hot water because in the wintertime our heating is a water system, kind of radiator system. And um, so uh, we would, you know, we really would like to be able to have a solar water heater to be able to uh, lower the amount of, we feel that's the next step for us to lower our energy usage at the retreat center. And so um, I'm so inspired, but I think it's so important to do it that for this Earth Care Week, um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of dedicating all the dana, both teacher dana for me and also for the IMC dana. Um, as a fundraising drive for doing the solar water heater. So if you make donations tonight, today, that's what it's for. And um, it's also, as someone pointed out to me last week, um, for those of you who would like to mitigate some of your you know, energy usage, you know, balance it all out a little bit and make a difference, um, donating to something that caused like that is one way to do that. So out of your generosity and compassion and inspiration and happiness, maybe that's relevant today. You'll support us in, in um, trying to get that water heater up on that roof. So um, I hope this talk, my hope in this talk was to share a little bit of Buddhist kind of view on this kind of topic, a little bit to inspire you, uh, and, I, and try to do it without distressing you. So, 50,000 square miles. Uh, <laughs> tar field fields in Alberta. Wow. It's quite something. 
So let's all make a difference. Thank you.